Thank you for visiting the openword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of the series from Alan Schaefer. And uh, try to finish this book up tonight. Father, thanks for this night, and I pray that um, as we stop and study your word, that you would particularly open our hearts to the truth. We thank you for being here and being together. We thank you for your son who died to redeem us. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that gives us insight and understanding. And I pray that you would teach us now and help us to apply this word to our lives, that we may be godly men and women for you. In Christ's name, amen. Um, by the way, the next class starts January 6th. And I'll be using uh, MacArthur's Revelation commentaries. Or if you got the EBC, you can use that too. You don't have to. Revelation and Daniel. He doesn't have a Daniel commentary. Um, this Revelation. Yeah, I'm not sure what I'll use for Daniel. I'll try to find out and get that information to you so you can have the books. Um, but yeah, his the Revelation commentaries he does are really good. They're very readable and understandable. So there's two of them. There's Revelation one through eleven and or one through nine and ten through twenty-two or something like that. So, anyways, we left off in Second Timothy chapter three verse nine, where Paul is talking about the perilous times that are going to come upon us. In the last days, and of course, what is, as far as Paul's concerned, what is the last days? Now, right? In fact, as far as New Testament was concerned, the last days started with the second, or the first coming of Christ, and continue up to his second coming. So, we are in the last days. Welcome to the last days, all right? And then he says, basically what he's done in the first nine verses, he's talked about the false teachers. He's talking about what is the characteristic of men and the false teachers. All right, and again, that's the B theme. The B theme of First and Second Timothy and Titus is, is false teaching. All right, and he says, what is their character? And he uses a couple of examples of Janus and Jambres. These, of course, were the two court magicians um, that stood up against Moses. And uh, they were able to mimic the miracles. They were able to try and discount the ministry of Moses. And uh, God showed them up because Moses' rod, of course, ate their rod. The snake, he, his rod turned into ate theirs. And then they were unable to duplicate the ten plagues that fell upon Egypt. And he's talking about how these men resist the truth, men of corrupt minds. Um, today there's a resistance to the truth. People resist the truth. It's not as much that they don't know the truth, but if they did know the truth, they don't like it, so they will resist it. And that's an active thing. We see that nowadays. Um, people don't want to know the Word of God. They don't want to know what God says. And even if they somehow think that the Word of God is true, they don't accept it. They won't accept it. They reject it. They resist it. They don't want to hear what is true. They want to hear that which is false. And we're going to find out about that later on chapter 4. Where he talks about that. But then Paul says, okay, here's the false people, but now 
you know me. So he's drawing a distinction between the false prophets, the false teachers, the liars, the deceivers, and his ministry. Okay? But you have carefully followed my doctrine. In, in distinction to you following the false teachers, in distinction to you following the error, what you've done is you followed my doctrine. Now, let's understand before we think that Paul's on some kind of ego trip. Where does he get his doctrine? Is, he gets it from the Word of God. He, it's not Paul saying, well, I, hey, this is the stuff I've made up in my spare time. Paul's not asking Timothy to follow his notions of things. Rather, he is asking Timothy to follow the Word of God. And later on, in fact, he's going to talk about that. He's going to talk about Grandmother Lois, Mother Eunice. He's already know about those. And he says, from a child you've heard the Holy Scriptures. So everything that Paul is talking about is founded in the Word of God. He's not making this stuff up. And he's saying, you've carefully followed my doctrine. What is that? My teaching. You followed my teaching. Where did Paul get his teaching? From the Word of God. In fact, we've got to understand, Paul was, Paul was not a stupid person. Um, prior to his conviction, what was he? Yeah, and who did he learn from? Gamaliel. And Gamaliel was no slouch when it came to theology. He was probably one of the most learned scholars of those days. And we need to understand that some of these guys could quote the entire Old Testament by heart. And they knew it that well. They could quote the whole thing all the way through. Their entire life was consumed by the Scriptures. And so they knew it. And Paul knew it. Paul was not a dummy. When it came to understanding the Old Testament, he could run rings around people because he knew it. And he says, you followed carefully my teaching. My teaching as derived from the Word of God. You followed it. You know what I teach. It's no secret. Um, some of these guys on TV, do you know what they teach? Yeah, you know, maybe know a little bit of stuff, but... You really don't know what they believe, some of them. Paul's telling Timothy, you know what it is. And you know my manner of life. You can put my in front of all of these things. What does he mean by manner of life? Now, how did Timothy pick that up? By being with Paul a lot. <laughs> Timothy was with Paul a lot. Remember, Timothy was Paul's right-hand man. Timothy is the one that gets the baton. When Paul goes off the scene, Timothy's the next guy that takes the baton to the next generation. Timothy's no slouch, and Timothy has followed Paul's manner of life over a period of years. Now, let's think. When did, when did Timothy first meet Paul? Second missionary journey, what was the date? What was the date of the second missionary journey? No. It was in the late 40s, I think. Um, and where did Timothy live? Lystra. What happened to Paul at Lystra? What happened to Paul at Lystra? 
He was stoned and left outside the city dead. That was Timothy's introduction to Paul. All right. Now, you might want to make an argument as to when did Paul really first meet Timothy, possibly. Yeah, and he met him at his first missionary journey. Because where did he go on his first missionary journey? Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derby. Second missionary journey, he went back to those same places. All right. So Paul, I mean, Timothy's probably met Paul. We could even argue the first missionary journey, which would have been right around the mid-40s. Take Remember, Acts is about 45, 46 AD, somewhere around in there, is when Paul might have met Timothy. What year is this now? When Paul's writing this, what, what year is it? About 66. See? So that so if you do your math, how long has Timothy known Paul? Twenty years. Paul says, You followed my life for twenty years. You've seen me. You've you've observed my doctrine, you've observed how I've taught. You've watched my manner of life. So when somebody come along and told Timothy, Well, let me tell you something about Paul, what did Timothy know? He knew Paul. He knew Paul. You ever have that, you know, where, where you know somebody really well and somebody comes up and gives you a line about that person and, you know, you're sitting there saying, well, you don't even know what you're talking about. You have no idea who it is you're saying this about. I know them and what you're saying is not like them at all. Timothy could do that. I mean, he knew Paul. He had watched him. He had saw his life. He had saw all the, all the stuff he had gone through. Paul says, you know what I'm like. You know my life. And you know my purpose. What's Paul's purpose? What do you mean, what does he mean by that? You know what drives me. You know what, what makes me do what I do. And how do you pick that up? By being with somebody. By being with somebody. By, by talking to them and by spending time with them to get an understanding of what, what is it that motivates them, that drives them, what's their passions? What's the desires of their heart? Why do they do what they do? Paul says, you know what drives me because you've been with me, you've watched me, you've seen me. You've seen my life. You've seen my faith. You've watched me face the trials that I face and you've watched my faith through that. You've seen how I've lived my life. It's no secret to you, Timothy. My life's been an open book. And you know my long suffering. What's that? The stuff I've put up with. The trials. There's long suffering and there's patience. Patience usually means hupomene usually means um, has to do with circumstances. Long-suffering has to do with people. It's two different things. Paul says, you've known how I've suffered with people. Now, how do you find that out? You have to be with them. Um, I, I don't use... 
I don't usually do name dropping. I don't want you to think I'm doing name dropping or anything like that. But, you know, before Pastor Walls left, I got to be pretty good friends with him. We go out and golf every Saturday. There'd be two or three of us. We had a foursome. And we go out and golf every Saturday. And he's been through a lot at this church. He's been through a lot of controversy and things. But it's interesting that over the five years that we golf just every Saturday, I had to get up at 5.30 in the morning to play. I don't know why I would ever do that, but I did. I like golfing, but not at 5.30 in the morning. We had this guy that wanted to get out at the crack of dawn. I mean, you know, the sun wasn't even up. He wanted to tee off in the dark. But uh, anyways, it was fun. Um, but I got to know him. And uh, I didn't say that to a lot of people, that I knew him as well as I did. But I got to know what drove him. I got to know what was on his heart. I got to know why he did what he did. And I, got, I, I gained an admiration for him. And I'd often hear people talk about things and say, well, you know, why is he doing this and why is he doing that? But I, I wouldn't speak up, but I could almost say in my heart, well, I know what he's doing because I know what drives him. I know where his passion is. I know what his desire is, and it's not what you think it is because you don't know him. I know what drives him. I know what motivates him. And I know I got to know some of the trials he went through with people. You don't know what it's like to be the pastor. You know, you can't make anybody happy. Somebody's always mad at you about something. And uh, I mean he didn't he you know he didn't gossip or anything like that, but you know, there was some situation we were both involved in, and I knew the, the stuff he suffered dealing with people. I got to know him a little bit, and I gained an appreciation for him that I wouldn't have had had I not known him. I knew what he was like. I knew what motivated him and what drove him to do the things he did. And you talk to somebody say, well, you know, he's arrogant. He's just, he's doing it because of arrogance. No, he's not. Arrogance has nothing to do with it, and I know why he's doing it, because he has a passion to reach lost people. That's what motivated him. You want to know what motivated him? He wanted to reach people that were lost. That's what motivated him. That's what made him get up in the morning and do the things he did. And if you didn't take the time to get to know him, and I had, I had an opportunity to do that, but if you don't take the time to get to know someone, you don't know what drives them. All you can do is look at it far and say, well, I know, I, I think he's doing it because of this or because of that. You don't really know that unless you really know that person. And all Paul is saying here is to Timothy, he said, you know, you've spent enough time with me. We've been around the course long enough. We've played enough holes on the golf course. You've watched my life. You know what I'm about. You know what motivates me. You've seen my trials that I've gone through. You understand the faith I've had to deal with. You understand my weaknesses. You know what I'm like. You know my love, my, my drive to, to put myself out for other people. And my perseverance, what's that? That's just sticking at it, not giving up. Some people said the measure of a man is what it takes to stop him. Um, a lot of people start things, not many people finish them, right? I just like to be Noah. Ever think about that? God shows up, hey, it's going to rain. What's rain? Well, it's water from the sky. Well, what's that? I've never seen that. In fact, I talked to great-grandpa Abraham, and, or Adam, and he's never seen it either. In fact, we've got 1,600 years of history where there's no rain. Well, it's going to rain. Believe me. I want you to build a boat. And how long did it take him to build a boat? 
120 years. How'd you like to work on something 120 years? Now, you know, I can understand a week or two or three, you know. But after a while, it's just like, when am I ever going to get this stupid thing built? I mean, it's, you, you know, the, I don't know about you, but I get impatient. I want to finish stuff. I don't want to start stuff. I want to finish it. And that's perseverance. Perseverance is sticking it out in the dry periods to finish whatever it is you start out to finish. A lot of people start stuff. A lot of people start out strong, but they fizzle. And Paul says, you've known how I've stuck it out. How long had Paul been a Christian at this time? About. Well, it's A.D. 66. When was the crucifixion? Somewhere around 33. Shortly after that, you have the conversion of Paul. About 30 years. Paul stuck at it for 30 years. And he wasn't worried about retirement. He didn't have this concept of retirement. He was working it. He says, you know my perseverance. You know how I've stuck it out. I didn't quit. And there's something good about not quitting. There's something, you know, there's, there, there's a good quality to someone who won't quit. Now, some people say, well, they're stubborn, they're bullheaded. You know, no. If you, if you know that you need to finish something, you need to stay at it until it's done. And Paul says, you know my perseverance. And you know, verse 11, the persecutions and afflictions. Persecution and affliction. What's affliction? Probably physical problems. He said, you've seen me when I was sick. You've seen the persecutions. You've seen all the things, and you want a list of persecutions, you go over to 2 Corinthians and find out, you know, he was shipwrecked. I'd like to spend three days out in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea clinging to a piece of wood. Yep, shipwrecked. Um, he uh, was beaten with rods many times, stoned. He went without food. He was hungry. He was cold. I mean, that's kind of ridiculous when you go back to 1 Thessalonians. People say, well, Paul was in the ministry just for the money. It's like, well, I could have picked a better job than being an apostle. I mean, when you look at all the trouble he went through, that wasn't a very, a very good thing to be. I mean, he made a bad career choice if he was in it for money. You're going to say something, Steve. Was he handicapped? We don't know. There's, there's a question on that. Yeah, there's a question. Some people say he had bad eyesight. There's probably indications that he might have. Yeah, that's true. You know, getting stones thrown at you and and beaten and all of that. I mean, that was probably a, a tough. And he said, "I bear about my body the marks. That's the scars, right?" And this guy was went through the ringer. And he told Timothy, "You know what I've been through." See, you know, and here's here's the thing. Why why do you think he's telling Timothy this? Well, to build him up, but why, why is he telling him, you know about me? Because he will go through the same thing. Well, he probably will go through the same thing. Right. 
Well, yeah, he knows that. That's pro that's a possibility there too. I think what Paul is trying to get Timothy to get get across to Timothy, saying, "You know, Timothy, anybody can put on a face when things are great. You know, when 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 you know it's calm waters and smooth sailing, and you know anybody can be a Christian." But let's let the storms come. Let's let the winds blow. Let's let the rain come. And then we'll see what kind of person you are, right? The two guys that built the house in, in Matthew chapter 7, both of them look pretty good, right? I mean, they're both beautiful houses. And then the rains came and the floods descended and the winds blew. And what happened? One fell and one stood. And Paul is saying, you've seen my life. You've seen the rains come and the winds blow, you've watched it. And you see that it's real. There's a reality there. My life was built on rock, not on sand. You know me. And you know the afflictions which happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, what persecutions I endured. Well, that was Timothy's stomping grounds, wasn't it? Timothy was born in Lystra. He lived in Lystra. That's where Paul was stoned and thrown outside the city as dead. And, and Timothy watched Paul being persecuted mercilessly by the Judaizers. He says, you know what I've been through. You've watched it. And out of them all, the Lord delivered me. What does he mean by that? Out of them all, the Lord delivered me. Yeah, and and I think there, there's a there's a something here to understand. He said the Lord did not deliver me in the sense that he made the problems go away. The Lord delivered me in the sense that he brought me through the trial, and I endured and came out the other side. Because he says in the next verse, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So don't let anybody on TV tell you if you're suffering as a Christian, you're out of God's will. Or if you're being persecuted, you don't have enough faith. They don't know what they're talking about. They're one of the Janus and Jambres. Just ignore them. Well, I would have to say that if you, if you have, uh, you're nervous about stuff, or if you fear, then you don't have any faith. Well, I think Paul was afraid of a few things, but fear is not lack of fear. Fear is understanding it, but going ahead anyways. I mean, it doesn't we all fear things, don't we? Mm -hmm. Anybody in here fear death? Depends on what means. What you mean by that, right? But do you fear death? Yeah. Yeah, I do. All right. I mean, it's okay. I fear death now. Lot, you know, when I think about it, I don't have to fear death in the sense that my eternal destiny is secure. But I'm not, you know, I'm not looking for ways to die right now. Now, does that mean I don't have any faith? No, it doesn't mean that at all. All right. So, you know, got you know, we get we got this idea in America. We talked about this a few weeks ago. We want to live in a defect-free society. 
and we want defect-free Christianity. We want a Christianity where there's no pain, there's no suffering. Every time you pray, God delivers a check to the door the next day. You know, no problems. And that doesn't exist. And Paul is saying, if you desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, you're going to suffer persecution. Just mark it down. It's normal. There's nothing abnormal about it. Paul was one of the godliest people that ever existed. What happened to him? You know, persecution. Yeah. So don't let any preacher or any guy on TV or anybody tell you that if you're a Christian, you should have this, you know, tip through the tulips kind of life that's just an idyllic, you know, coast into heaven kind of thing. It doesn't work that way. Paul says persecution is part of our existence. And you've known my life. You've watched my manner of life. You've watched how I have lived. You know me. And unlike these false teachers who teach error, unlike Janice and Jambres, you've watched my life. And this goes back to, I just got a, I just got a new book. We were talking about leadership the last time here. MacArthur just come out a book on the book on leadership by John MacArthur. It's actually a good book. And uh, I started reading it the other night. And um, it's interesting that, that he basically, you know, when you look at the Bible, what is, biblically, what is it that makes a leader? What makes or breaks a leader? Yes, yeah, so you read the book, so you're not as well. That's my subject. That was my subject. <laughs> it's character. It's character. It doesn't talk about the strong natural leader. It doesn't give any of the psychological profiles of what leaders are. It's character. It's all character. As far as the Bible's concerned, leadership is 100% character. And when we look at the world today, the last thing we want in a leader is character, right? We want everything else. talking to somebody and they said, yeah, Clinton was the best president we ever had. I said, why? Well, you know, economy's going. Well, if that's what you're looking at, yeah, he was. But what's a leader? What makes a leader? Character. Nothing else matters. And that's the that's quality of the elders in the church, right? We went back over that. Character. It's all character. All those character. All those traits are character traits. And if you flunk on character, you flunk as a leader. You, you miss it. And Paul is talking here not about his skills, is he? Do you see anything here about Paul's skills? Does he talk about his degrees? Well, that's what he said over in Philippians. He said, I counted scubalon, human refuse, manure, no, he's talking about character issues. So if you want to be a leader, what do you need to work on? Your character. That's, that's the most important component. It's all about character. Verse 13, but evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Evil men and imposters will get worse and worse. 
And notice what happens here. They will deceive and they are being deceived. What do you think he means by that? Mm -hmm. uh, let's take the leadership of the Mormon church. Do they deceive people? Yep. Do they know they're deceiving people? No. Probably not. Probably not. So not only are they in the process of deceiving, but they are being deceived themselves. Of course, who is the chief deceiver of all? Satan is the chief deceiver of all. And he says as time goes on, it's going to get worse and worse. Now, what do we have today? It's getting worse and worse. In fact, you can believe anything you want today except that you're right. That's the one thing you can't do. You go to Oberlin College, put on a bathrobe, tell them you're Moses, and everybody will, no problems. Go there and tell them you're right, and you'll get run off the campus. Go to philosophy class and say, I know the answer. Class is over, right? You don't need the philosophy department. You get rid of it. If you know the truth, right? Who cares what Sartre thought or who Kierkegaard thought or Immanuel Kant? Who cares what he thinks, right? If you know the truth, why, why do you care about what they think? So you can believe anything you want. You just can't believe you're right. And isn't that what he said, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth? Remember? 317, I think it is, 1 Timothy. You're always learning, and you're never able to find an answer. Because once you found the answer, the fun's over, right? Paul's saying they will get worse. And look, it says, evil men and imposters. What's an imposter? A false proverb, somebody pretending to be something that they're not. And evil men... What is that? What's that? In context. It's a false teacher. They're evil men. And imposters. It says they're going to get worse and worse. Look at all the junk that we've... Look at all the stuff today, right? Look at all the ideas floating around out there to deceive people. Look at all the cults. Look at all the false religions. Look at all the weird notions. And it's getting worse and worse and worse. It's getting darker and darker and darker. Because there's more and more false prophets. And in distinction to those who are deceiving and being deceived, but you, Timothy, you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from where, from whom you have learned them. What do you need to continue? What's it mean to continue in? Hang on to it. Remember it talks about the divine trust. God's given you a divine trust, the truth, and we're responsible for how we hold on to that and how we deal with it and how we use it. God's given us his word. He's given us the truth. And we need to continue in that truth. And to not get sucked off where? In the endless genealogies and babblings, and old wives' fables. Don't get sucked off into that. Here's where you need to stay. Continue in the things which you have heard, knowing from whom you have heard them. Who did Timothy learn from? 
Paul and his mother and his grandmother. Don't. Oh, wonderful. Got some singing out there now. Yeah. Yeah. But the whole, yeah, the whole point here is that he's saying that continue in the word. What keeps you from falling into error? Staying in the Word. you got to stay in this stuff here. You can't get out of it. Because there's so much garbage going on out there. And, and that, what, you know, it's interesting. I, I run into Christians that get sucked up into some of this stuff. And you sort of scratch your head saying, you know, what in the world? Why do they believe that? Well, you know why they believe that? They got away from this. They got sucked off into somebody's endless genealogy or somebody's cool idea. You know, somebody comes along and says, you know, the Lord revealed something to me. Time out. Stop. Hold it. Well, he didn't reveal that to me. Especially if it's some cool notion that no one's heard of before. You know, they, there's a lot of those. Well, God told me that this verse really means yada, yada, yada. And you look at that verse and say, well, I don't see it coming out of that verse. Well, God told me that's what it meant. Don't, don't believe it. Don't even go there, all right? Don't get down that road. He says, you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of. The idea of learning is to get in your eye. And what's the idea of being assured of? Because you've seen it work. You've seen it in practice. You've watched it work. So there's an assurance that, yeah, this is true. And I know it's true because... It's valid. It works. Knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from a childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures. From a child. When did Timothy start his biblical knowledge from a child? What Scriptures did he have? The Old Testament. You've learned the Scriptures. From a child you've learned that. They have the whole Old Testament. Um, the, the, the Old Testament, as we understand it, was pretty much solidified a couple hundred years before the New Testament times. Um, they had all the books that we have. And that was considered their Old Testament. There were 22 books in the Old Testament because they put the 12 minor apostles together, prophets together into one book. So that was all mashed together. And Ezra and Nehemiah were put together as to one book. So they had 22 instead of 39 because they put some books together. Um, I think Lamentations of Jeremiah were put together. You know, but it, it was the same. Although it was 22 books, it was the same text that we have. So yeah, they, they had that. Yeah, there's a lot of that. There's a whole ton of that that, um, that was really rejected by the Jews. They didn't accept it. The rabbis didn't accept it. Um, some of it you find in the Douay version of the Bible, you know, like the story of Judith and, um, you know, Bell and the Dragon and some other. They're sort of fun reading, but they're not scripture, you know. Um, but he's saying you've learned them from childhood, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. The word does not return void, but it, accomplish it. It makes you wise. 
it helps you to what does it mean to be wise? What is when when the Bible talks about wisdom? What is it talking about? Mm -hmm. And it has to do with, yeah, it's not knowledge, it's life, okay? That's the Hebrew concept, and of course that's the concept here. To the Greek, what was wisdom? A bunch of information. In fact, we use that today, you know, we say, well, somebody's wise, why? They're, they're smart, they got a bunch of information in their head. Well, you know, you can be wise and not be wise, as far as the Bible's concerned. You can have a lot of stuff up here. And you can live like an idiot in your life. And as far as God is concerned, you're a fool. Wisdom has to do with how you live. And Paul is saying the scriptures make you wise. They give you understanding, spiritual understanding, and direct your life. See, we live in a society today where everybody gets to do their own thing. And I won't tell you how to live and you didn't tell me how to live. You know, the horrible thing today is to actually tell someone they're wrong about anything. Bible tells us this is what wisdom is. This is how you live your life. And the wise man in the Bible is the one who lives his life in accordance with what the Word of God says. Timothy, you've known it from a childhood. You've, you've, you've learned the scriptures from a child and now it's made a difference in your life. And you know, I can, I can um, relate to that because I was brought up in a Christian home. I mean, when I was young enough to do anything, I went to church. Um, I hated sitting there when the pastor was preaching, but I went to church. I was always in church. I don't know what it was like to not go to church. And um, that just became ingrained into me. And uh, I remember learning Bible verses when I was very young. And... Um, I always believed in God. I never, there was never a time when I didn't believe in God. You know, there was never a time when I didn't believe in Jesus or didn't believe in heaven or didn't believe this is the word of God. Um, and that, that made a difference in my life. It kept me from going down a lot of paths that I could have gone down, but I didn't. So, you know, this is a precious thing. And if you got kids, start them out early. Make sure they're in Sunday school. Make sure they're in church. Make sure they're learning Bible verses, you know. Because it'll pay dividends later on. And Paul is saying, you're there, Timothy. You're there. Because all scripture is given by inspiration of God. This, of course, is the great passage on inspiration. Inspiration means theonoustos, God breathed. What does it mean when we say God breathed out the scriptures? What do we mean by that? God inspired his, the word of God. Remember back to theology 1. How did Paul hear him? Paul, take a letter. <laughs> no, he didn't do that, right? Now, did God ever show up once in a while and tell him, okay, now I want you to write something down? Well, yeah, John, right? And how about Jeremiah? Right? But for the most part, how did God, how did Paul write this book? This is scripture, right? How did Paul write it? 
And what do we mean by that? Did Paul know he was inspired? You think Paul knew that this was we were going to be reading this letter? Absolutely not. Paul Paul said, I'm going to pen a letter to my son in the faith. I'm going to write a letter to Timothy. And Paul sat down and he wrote the letter out. And while he was writing, in some mysterious way, God was there orchestrating Paul's thoughts, Paul's words, Paul's ideas, so that what Paul wrote was not only coming directly from the heart of Paul, but was coming from the heart of God. That's what it means to be God-breathed. Well, Paul knew he was converted by God. Absolutely. So, therefore, I would think that he would in well, some ways know that what's coming from him but did he know it was infallible scripture? Oh, no. Nope. In fact, how many letters did Paul write? He wrote a lot of them. No, he wrote a lot of letters, didn't he? We know at least he wrote four letters to the Corinthian church. He probably wrote other letters to Timothy that we don't have. He wrote letters all over the place. So I don't think Paul knew that what he was writing was Scripture. Paul was writing what was on his heart. And yet God so moved his heart that what he wrote was Scripture. That's what it means by God breathed. All Scripture is breathed out by God. I just wanted to make a comment on it. When I took Colossians 2, so of course that was one of the key members was God's Word. And uh, inspired by God, you know, from younger people that I talked to, family, a lot of people. That seems to be the most difficult concept for them to grasp about the Bible. They just can't believe that God can inspire these men to write the Bible. Mm -hmm. They don't embrace that, so it's hard for them to embrace anything else. Well, one of the problems we have is we use the word inspire in so many ways. You know, um, a man falls in love with a woman and he's inspired to write a song. Is that biblical inspiration? Well, no, you see a beautiful sunset and you're inspired to paint a painting. No, it doesn't mean that at all. When we use inspiration in the scripture, it means something totally different. In fact, inspiration is best seen when the person who's writing it has no idea that it's going on. They're just writing down something. Did Luke know he was writing scripture? No, he was writing a historical treatment of the life of Christ and of the early church. Now, God so moved his heart that what he wrote was scripture. But not everything Luke wrote was scripture. And that's the mystery. Paul is saying all the scripture is given by inspiration of God. Now, some people try to change that and say all scripture that is inspired. Mm-hmm. No. Because that allows them to say, well, I don't like this verse and I'm going to rip it out because Obviously, that's not fit my, that doesn't fit my idea of what God should have inspired. He shouldn't have said that. I don't know why God's... We'll take that out. And that, that's the, um, you know, the Jesus seminar you know, that winds up with... Yeah, they wind up with one verse out of John that Jesus actually said. The rest of it was iffy. And most of it was he never said that at all. That's when you let men figure out what God said. No. Paul is saying all Scripture is inspired by God. Now, what... How do you know what is scripture? Remember we talked about that in theology. How do you know what's scripture and what isn't? It's inspired by God. How do you know it's inspired by God? 
because it uh, it's consistent with scripture. It's consistent. It's inerrant. It is accepted by the early church. Remember, we talked about that. How it was accepted. It's changed lives. And there's a quality about this when you read this over other things, just sets it apart. There's no scientific formula that you subject a a book to to figure out whether it's inspired or not. Inspir you know, the, the whole that's the whole canonization concept. How, how did the word of God become canonized? Well, it was a process over time. Certain books were seen and recognized as having a quality different than other letters. Other letters may have been good to read, but they were not scripture. And Paul is saying all scripture is inspired, God breathed. Breathed out by God. And it's profitable for four things. For doctrine. What's doctrine? Teaching, right? Doctrine is what is true. It's the teachings of Scripture. All Scripture is profitable. The idea of profitable is what? It does you good. Does you good. That's, that's the stuff. You know, when you eat good food, that's profitable, right? When you, eat, when you eat sound doctrine, expose yourself to sound doctrine, that's a profitable thing. It's a good thing to be doing. And he's saying all Scripture is inspired by God, and all Scripture is profitable for... Doctrine. How do you know what you should believe? How do you know what you should believe? Yeah. How do you know God's a trinity? How do you know that? Somebody dreamed that up one day and... The scripture gives us that understanding that God is a trinity. How do you know that Jesus is the Son of God? Scripture. How do you know heaven exists? Scripture. Alright. Scripture give, tells you what you ought to believe. And not only is it tells you what you ought to believe, but it tells you this is what you should do about what you believe. Not only is this what is said, but this is what you do about it. It's good for doctrine. It's good for reproof. What's reproof? When somebody reproves you, what is that? They what? Check up on you. They point out what? Error. Hey, the Bible says this, but you're doing this. Right? And by the way, that's, that's, that is our only basis for reproof, right? I can't go to you and say, you're wrong. Why are you wrong? Well, you're doing something I don't think you should do. Well, who am I, right? Who made me God, right? Nobody did. But if I come to you and say, you know, you're doing wrong, well, why do you know? Well, you know, the Bible says this, you're doing this. Okay, there's the basis, right? And we need to be very careful of that. We need to be careful that when we reprove people, we reprove people not on the basis of our own personal preferences, but on the basis of the truth of the Word of God. We have a lot of personal preferences, we all do, but that's not Scripture. I can't tell you you're a sinner because you use the NIV. Or in your case, you've used the Spanish Bible. That's sin you're sinning. You need to use the King James. And just because it's not in Spanish is your problem. You need to learn English, you know. I mean, you can't, you can't do that, right? That's making stuff up. Reproof is you reprove on the 
basis of the Word of God. Then what is correction? Mm -hmm. When you're correcting someone, what are you doing? When you correct your kids, what are you doing? Yeah, you're saying you're doing this, you ought to be doing this, and this is how you get from here to there. This is how you correct your behavior. This is how you do the right thing. Okay? And then what do you think does it mean by instruction and righteousness? Profitable to instruct you in righteousness. What is righteousness? Yeah, it's it's what God does, right? It's righteous because God does it. God doesn't do it because it's righteous. We're to act like God. We're to do what God does. Would act like him. Yeah. I was say, I find it fascinating that this was the first book when it turned whatever was six or seven hundred years ago. And in spite of the efforts worldwide, I mean, distribution, it's never, you know, it's, it's there. Yeah. You can't stomp it out. The first book that rolled off Gutenberg's press yeah. was the Bible. Instruction in righteous tells you how to live, it tells you how to. Do right things. So if you draw a little, and you've all seen this diagram, I know. Some of you maybe have not seen it. All right. But the Bible is good for doctrine. And doctrine tells you how you should live. It tells you how to live your life, what you should do. And it's good for reproof. Reproof is when you get off the path, when you're doing the wrong thing. It tells you where you've messed up. It tells you where you're in error. And then correction tells you how to get back on the path. And then instruction in righteousness tells you how to stay on it. How to stay on the path. So what you see is the Bible is fully profitable to do this. Now, Seth, as a psychologist, whatever, what, what's your goal in life? And when people come to you, what do they want you to do for them? They want to be happy. They want to be happy. They want to they be doing the right thing, or whatever it is that they might say that is. But they're, they're saying something's out of kilter, right? They're basically coming to you saying, there's something wrong. I'm not happy. I want to get happy. To them, happy is where they want to be. And they want you to tell them or help them how to get back to being happy, right? That's what they want. Yeah. But the whole point is, what is it to be ultimately happy? How are you ultimately happy? Yeah. comes when you are holy. Yeah, it's when you're holy. That's happiness. Now, they want happiness, but they don't want that definition. They want some warm fuzzy in their, you know, in their life. But what Paul is saying is that it is, and this is the point I think we need to really key in on and understand. What is it that 
that enables you, that tells you how to live right and enables you to live right and do right, what is that that enables you to do that? The Word of God. That's where it is. It's not psychological theories. You know, there's a dime a dozen, right? I mean, how many theories are there out there? I mean, count up the number of psychiatrists. That's the number of theories you got almost. Seth knows I pick on him a little. He, 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 his wife's there worries him. Oh, he's, he's picking on him. <laughs> but, uh, but the whole the whole point is, you know, we, we live in a world today where you know you got Dr. Phil on TV telling you how to be happy, right? Yeah. Now, how much of what he says is biblically accurate? No. I don't think any of it is, right? No. There is some that is. All right. I don't watch Dr. Phil, so I don't play. I don't know. I'm all right, so I gotta. I'll set up a golf point with Dr. Phil here and. And and those are he's for you know I mean he confronts people he really confronts a lot of people that wrong. But here's the question: When he confronts them and he does the right thing, what is he? That's the biblical part. That's the biblical part, right? Because it's correction for the better. We may not be a Christian, all right? But can a non-Christian do the right thing? Yes. Well, yeah, you know they can they can do the right thing. The whole point that Paul is trying to make is. What is, where is the number one source and standard of life instruction? It's the Word of God. Now, you might have some other things where it intersects the Word of God. All right. But where is the purest form of finding out what to do and how to live? It's here. All right. So, as a believer, as a Christian... Where should you go to figure out how to live your life? Here, you don't need the therapists. Although, you know, it might be good if you have problems and you go to Seth, he will counsel you from the Word of God and tell you, okay, here's where you're blowing it and here's how to get back on. The, and that's the correct thing to do. That's, that's what you ought to do. But if you go to some other ones, they'll tell you, well, if you got guilt, just keep doing it until you don't feel bad anymore. Or they redefine it. or You know, there's all kinds of things. The whole point is, Paul is trying to say, it is the Word of God that enables you to live right. And what we do, here's the problem what we have today in the churches. We have churches full of what we could call pop psychologies and pop theologies. Where, you know, we have these little problems, and, and this sounds so cool, but the Bible's not part of it. And we get drawn off into that. And that's like what Paul's saying. You get drawn off in these endless genealogies and these fables and this other stuff. And where do you need to go? You need to go here. This will tell you how to live. This will tell you how to get your life back on track if it's off track. This will tell you what God expects. This will tell you people want happiness, but they don't want to do what it takes to be happy. They want to be happy and be sinning at the same time. And the Bible says, well, you ain't gonna, that ain't going to happen. You want joy? Where, do you come, where does it come from? Obedience. Well, I don't like the old word. I want to do what I want to do. Well, then you can't have joy. 
Well, then give me a prescription, you know, so they go off with Valium and everything else you can get, you know, to somehow cope with life. As believers, as believers, we need to really, and I, and I think the church has really missed this, and I'm talking about the church as a whole, has really missed us. We downplay the sufficiency of Scripture. It's the sufficiency. This is a verse here on the sufficiency of Scripture. All Scripture is inspired by God, and all of it is profitable to do what? To help you live right. That's what that diagram, that's how you live. It's profitable to help you live right. So if you need to know how to live, you don't need to go anywhere else other than here. Now, maybe you need help understanding how to apply this, but there's no truth outside of this that God forgot to tell us. And yet in the churches today, there's this, there's this sort of this underlying, I don't want to, there's an underlying idea that somehow God left some things out. You know, God didn't give us the full scoop. You know, and it, we had to wait for Freud and for Rogers and these other guys to come along and fill in the blanks that God didn't tell us. Because, you know, these guys, they weren't so sophisticated back then. and They wouldn't have understood it anyway, so we had to wait till we got a little bit smarter till God could reveal this through Freud and all these other guys. And there's a tacit understanding that somehow the Bible's not enough. And it's a rare counselor like Seth that you would go to where actually he says, well, here's, he starts out with the Bible on top. Most of them start out with, you know, you got Freud, Maslow, and Rogers, and, well, none of those, well, looks like we're stuck with the Bible. Maybe that'll help us, you know, and you pull it out from your drawer because you're afraid to use it. Well, you know, we don't need to be afraid of it. This tells us how to live. You don't need these other theories. You don't need these other notions, these other philosophies. You need the Word of God. Now, does the Bible, and here's a question, does the Bible deal with every need that we have? Does it address every spiritual need? Absolutely. It's not a textbook on medicine, is it? No, it's not intended to be that. But when it comes down to spiritual things, matters of the soul, where do you go get your truth? Here. Now, there may be medical issues you need to deal with, and that's a different thing, but... When it comes down to knowing how to live, you want to know how to discipline your kids, this will tell you. You want to know how to treat your wife and your husband, it's here. You want to know how to work, how to treat your boss, it's tell you how to do that. You want to know how to deal with God, well, this tells you that too. You want to know how to get along with each other, well, that Bible has some things to say about that. Yeah. Because what Paul says in verse 17 is this, that the man of God may be what? Complete. Thoroughly. What does it mean to be thoroughly equipped? Yeah, you're not missing anything, right? Thoroughly equipped means you're not missing. You know, I, I, do, I do odd jobs around my house, and I have a little tray of my tools in it. But you know how many times the tool I want is not in that tray? It's 100% of the time. I got every tool I want but the one I need. You know, I'm not thoroughly equipped. If I was thoroughly equipped, I would have everything I needed. 
what Paul is saying, the Word of God has everything you need is right here. Well, you know, it doesn't deal with bulimia. It doesn't deal with anorexia. It doesn't deal with obsessive-compulsive disorders. It doesn't deal with homosexuality. You know, yes, it does. It's all right here. The principles are all here. You don't need something else. Few years back, I my son never had a Bible and I gave it to him. <laughs> and I put that verse in the front, tell him that's the first one you should read. And I, I put a twenty dollar bill in that section of the Bible. <laughs> he never he did find it. it for four months. He didn't look at it. <laughs> I just you know you will be prosperous and successful. And he found twenty <laughs> bucks. <you know? laughs> and I don't think he's looked at it too much more since then. I mean, we've been working on him a long time. So, uh, but I, yeah, I, I always remember that verse too. That's a good verse. Be careful to do everything. Mm -hmm. See, before we go on, let's let's go back to this. You know, I said, you know, about anorexia, bulimia, all these other eating disorders and that. What's the basis of an eating disorder? Seth, you know, you probably tell us. Does the Bible deal with those issues? Yeah. So it, it doesn't say, you don't read a, you know, there's not a passage in the Bible that says, okay, the cure for bulimia is, and it gives you this, no. But it talks about the causes that would cause somebody to be that way. It talks about the issues of, yeah, the core issues, the self-esteem, your view of self, your view of God. That's what the Bible deals with. And if you get those things lined up, the bulimia and the anorexia and the other stuff, takes care of itself if you get the core issues dealt with. And that's what the Bible deals with. It deals with core issues. The other stuff is the other stuff is symptomatic. They're, they're symptoms. They're not the root causes. You need to be complete, thoroughly equipped. Here's the point. God did not leave anything out of the Scripture that we need to know. That's sort of a good thought, isn't it? He didn't forget anything. And again, I think a lot of Christians, although they would not come out and say that, they act as though that God forgot to tell us a few things that you know, would have been really helpful if he would have let us know about this. It's, it's not there. Subconscious, you know, that's a big thing. You know, I talk about the subconscious. Does the Bible talk about a subconscious? If you mean it by subconscious, some hidden force that makes you do things that has sort of a will of its own, the Bible doesn't even... Why do you do what you do? There's no subconscious about it. You do it because you want to do that. You know, now there may be, you know environmental factors and growing up factors that cause you to do certain things, but ultimately, why do you do something? Because you want to do it. You've decided to do it. You've made a conscious choice, a conscious decision to do that. The Bible doesn't talk about some hidden subconscious that drives you to do things out, outside and beyond your control. There's sort of like, you know, a, a part of you that's a buried down a layer that's making you do things. It's not there. It's not there. You do things because you choose. You know, I mean, I really disagree with that. There is. Okay. 
Mm -hmm. Oh, good. You got to scream. I just don't know biblically how to address that. If you mean what, what I'm trying to get at, you're probably thinking about the heart. Well, I'm thinking about things that are outside a person's awareness that leads them to do certain things or feel certain ways that they're not even aware of why, why that's there or where it's coming from. The Bible will call that the flesh, the fallenness. Okay. All right? And I agree with you that, that that exists. I'm thinking about the Freudian notion of subconscious. And the way some of these guys use it, some of the books even we have out here, where you've got, you know, this, this almost like the second consciousness in you. Um, there are certain, I agree with you, there are certain, you know, somebody say, you know, I don't know why I'm, you know, I have this fear of whatever. You know, they may not know that. You may not never know that. But it's based in issues, core issues, like you said, that the Bible does deal with. Someone says, I don't know why I'm afraid to go across a bridge. You know, it sounds silly to us. You know, why would you? I have a mother-in-law that refuses to go through a tunnel. She refuses. She will go over the mountain. She will not go through a tunnel. And I said, hey, let's go. No, I'm not going to. There's a tunnel between here and there, and I'm not doing it, you know. She's like Mr. T on what? On a team, you got to knock him out, you know, because he didn't want to fly in an airplane. R.C. Sproul won't fly in an airplane. He will not fly in an airplane. He will take a train across the country. He will not fly in a plane. Yeah, the Madmobile, you know, or whatever it is, you know. Like you said, the Bible doesn't address every issue in medicine that wasn't meant to. I don't think it, it, it covers every area. Of, it covers the uh, core issues. Of the mind and, and motivations and feelings and stuff, but it's not necessary for salvation. It's not, it's not necessary for salvation. It's not necessary to be righteous. thoroughly equipped. It's not necessary to be righteous. Right. Yeah, because it does deal with core issues. If you're afraid of something, what ultimately is that? Ultimately, what is that? In? In God or something. I mean, it works its way back to that somewhere along the line. You say, I can trust God for my eternal security, but I can't trust Him to get me from A to B on that plane. You know, there's... Yeah. And we all deal with those kind of things, right? We're all afraid of certain things. And, but the Bible deals with the core issues. The point is this Word of God is what gives us clarity and understanding. And it, it, it's, it does that because who's it written by? The guy who made us, right? The God who made us, right? The one who created us, who created our heart, who created our mind, He's the one that wrote this thing down. And he's put in here all necessary information we need to deal with life. Does that make any... What do you think, Seth? Yeah. Didn't do that. It's going to change all. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. God's called us to do certain things. And, and again, the Bible's not a textbook on every psycho psychosis that you can come up with. It doesn't talk about the post-election selection 
trauma. <laughs> All right. But it does deal with root issues, root causes. Those things, those things that of us that that cause certain behaviors or certain fears. Now, will we ultimately get rid of all that down here? No. Now, nah, you spend your entire life and, you know, but the Bible's not missing information. It's not missing sections that God didn't tell us. There's not 67 books of the Bible. If we just had that 67th book, we could solve this problem or that. No. It's all right here. I think just Proverbs alone would give somebody a pretty good idea of how we should live. I mean, if they read through that, there's a lot of things in there. I mean, the whole Bible, of course, is instruction. There's a lot of principles. And, you know, what is the root of a lot of our problems? Itself. It's, it's, it's ourselves. It's not others. It's myself. You know, yeah, look in the mirror. He makes me mad. Can you make me mad? You can't make me mad. I can allow you to make me mad, can I? Who does the choosing? Me. It all goes back to ourselves, our own hearts. And maybe that's, you know, sometimes when we think of the subconscious it's the heart, the, the inward you. And what is the heart? What does the Bible say the heart is? Deceitful and desperate. So are you going to be able to sort out your own heart? Can you sort out your heart? No. So what makes you think Seth can sort your heart out? Or somebody else? I'm, I'm, I, I, he knows. I'm not saying anything derogatory. I'm saying... If I can't figure my own heart out, are you going to figure my heart out for me and tell me, well, Alan, you know, the reason you did that is because when you were five years old, your mother made you eat lima beans. Well, it would be an interpretation, but I could help you figure out your heart for yourself a little better than you know it now. Maybe, uh, maybe give me God, some insights. No, no. And, and you're right. There, there are certain, and that goes back to biblical counseling, right? That's, right? that's all you're doing is you're taking the Word of God and applying it to my own life in a way that maybe I haven't thought about yet. Isn't that what counseling is? Isn't that what biblical exhortation is? It's taking the Word of God and applying it. And maybe, maybe I didn't see something or I haven't thought of something and you might help me have an insight. And, but it's the Word of God that's doing that. But ultimately, I'm not going to sort my own heart out. Folks, I don't know why I do certain things. If you ask me why I do certain things, I couldn't tell you. And if I did think I got the idea of why I do it. What's my heart? It's deceitful and desperately wicked. So it might be giving me the wrong information. Who knows my heart? God knows my heart. So therefore, if you want to figure yourself out, who do you go to? Ultimately, you go to the Word of God. Now, again, it helps to have others around you that can help you see some things and work through issues. But ultimately, the answers come from God. He's the one who knows your heart. What did David say? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my spirit and see if there's any wicked way in me. Now, what's he inviting God to do? Reprove me and correct me. Check me out. If there's a wicked way in me, tell me about it because... In that request is 
is intimated what? If God told him something, what would David do about it? He'd deal with it, right? He'd deal with it. We have a sufficient scripture. We have a Bible that has within it the principles, all of the principles we need to be thoroughly equipped. Our task is to get it from here, to learn it from here, to apply what the Bible says, and to allow ourselves to be reproved and corrected. That's one of the things we're missing. I was thinking just a while, you know, when I was eating supper tonight, of people I've run into that you can't teach them anything. You can't tell them anything. They have all the answers. You might, you know, they'll come to you and ask your opinion, but they're not going to do it. Their mind's already made up. And usually if they do that, if you don't tell them what they want, what do they do? They get mad. You have anybody get mad at you? Yeah. You'll say, here's what the Word of God says. Well, I don't like that, and I don't like you for telling me that. <laughs> you know, that's too bad, you know. But there are some people that you can't teach. One of the, I think, cries in this verse is cooperation here. Cooperation with the Spirit. The Bible is good for doctrine, so what does that imply that I should be doing? Well, studying it so I know what the doctrine is. And when it reproves me, what should I do? Get mad? Change. And look at how can I be corrected? How do I get back on the path I ought to be on? And how do I stay on that path by being instructed in righteousness? How can I do that? How can I stay on that path of holiness? You stay in the Word of God. You stay in the Word of God, and you apply the truths of the Word of God to your heart and to your life. And you're teachable. You're teachable. You're willing to have somebody look at you. Seth will tell you, you can't, you can't help somebody that doesn't want to hear anything. They don't want to be taught. You can't help them. All you can do is just take their money and send them on their way, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can't. You say, well, you're going to have to learn it the hard way. I can't help you. If you, if you don't want to do the right thing, I can't help you. And in a way, sometimes God does that to us. If we're not willing to be reproved and corrected, sometimes we pay some heavy consequences, don't we? Yeah, Spark. I was just going to say, Christian counseling did just that for me. You know, I went through my recovery in a couple of years because the foundation was that. I mean, it took things and put them into perspective. Mm -hmm. I was still responsible for any blatant immoral behavior through that whole time. I realized that. But it did help in that sense because it began to show me, you know, what was the moral thing and what, you know, where I was going here with this entire, where I should have been, you know. And sometimes it takes, and, so forth. and sometimes it takes somebody looking at you and pointing it out, doesn't it? Because we don't always see that. And again, why is that? So. Our heart is deceitful. And one of the most deceitful things about sin, I believe this truly, 
one of the most deceptive things about sin is you can be doing the wrong thing while at the same time absolutely convinced you're okay. It's called denial, but I mean, you can actually be convinced you're doing the right thing when all the while you're in blatant sin. And you just don't, and that's the decept, deceptive deception of sin. And that's why we need to cooperate with the Holy Spirit to, to knock us on the head and bring us back to reality when we're violating principles. And why we need each other. That's what it is. That's, that's body life. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.